Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, an historic property in Eatonville is being threatened by development. Shortly after the town's incorporation, the Robert Hungerford Industrial and Normal School was established on the Booker T. Washington model at Tuskegee, Alabama. We'll discuss crime and punishment in antebellum Pensacola. Samuel Keep, in 1827, wrote to a relative that he was, quote, obliged not to step out of doors without both my pistols loaded, end quote. And we'll talk about Miami's first lady of fashion, Joan Nielsen McHale. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Eatonville was established in 1887 as one of the first incorporated African-American municipalities in the United States. It's celebrated as the home of writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston, and tens of thousands of people from around the world gather annually in Eatonville for a festival in her honor. As N.Y. Nathiri, executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, explains, the Hungerford School is an important part of Eatonville history. Shortly after the town's incorporation, the Robert Hungerford Industrial and Normal School was established on the Booker T. Washington model at Tuskegee, Alabama. In fact, the first principals of the Hungerford School came from Tuskegee, and it was a model school that uh, looked at the connection between faculty and students living together. It was a boarding school. The school furnished all of its needs internally, that is, had chickens and hogs and, and grew crops. It was essentially a 19th century STEM school because the students were trained in the manual arts, industrial arts, trained if they needed to, wanted to go further after graduating. And so uh, within the emotional fabric of the town of Eatonville, the school really uh, represented that kind of close tie in the American society when the teacher, the preacher, and the doctor were fundamental to the core of society, that really is the Hunkerford School, known for its academic excellence and only in the uh, desegregation era when there was a systematic um, denigrating of high schools and academic schools in African-American communities 
Hungerford fell on hard times, essentially after it became part of the public school system in the 1950s and 60s. In 1951, the Orange County School District destroyed the original Hungerford School buildings and constructed new facilities. In 1974, a substantial portion of the Hungerford School property was sold to make way for the construction of I-4. In 2020, the Orange County School Board demolished the Hungerford School and wants to sell the site for more than $14.5 million. Developers are proposing to build hundreds of townhomes, as well as commercial and office space, in the heart of the historically black town. N.Y. Nathiri. The people of Eatonville gave the land over to Orange County Public Schools specifically for the education, quote-unquote, of Negro children. The reason I bring this forward is because Eatonville and the Hungerford property represents an exception to how Orange County Public Schools has property for educational purposes. The short answer to what would happen to Eatonville, it would actually be historic Eatonville would be erased. And in fact, the inheritance, the legacy of that land, there, there would be no economic justice for the people of Eatonville and our posterity because Orange County Public Schools would have sold the land to developers who, and I, I say this with confidence because so many of our preservationist friends who have reviewed these documents and the plans, there is a 100% agreement that this is absolutely horrible development planning and that the historic character of Eatonville would disappear and the town would disappear because of the configuration. You cannot take 100 acres of land and develop it in the way that's being proposed and keep the integrity of the historic character, the history, and the culture. N.Y. Nathiri and the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community have a very different vision for the Hungerford School property that includes a cultural campus to benefit residents while protecting the town's history. Our commitment is to have the land be returned and put in a land trust such time that proper master planning could be conducted and we could then as a community establish the highest and best use of the land, bringing to the issue the best minds, uh, the best experiences nationally, because Eatonville is nationally significant. And I say that because we're talking to Florida Frontiers audience. This is an audience that has an appreciation for history and for heritage and for the continuity of history. So this is really about a current event that has implications for posterity. The Southern Poverty Law Center for Economic Justice Project is helping with the effort to encourage planning carefully for the future use of the historic Hungerford School property. This is an essential example of what it means when your network of relationships across disciplines comes to the fore. As I said, we have sent out these plans for review and 
the resulting analysis was uh, unanimous. And one of our friends in West Texas, uh, who previously had been on faculty at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, suggested that research that graduate law students might find uh, this a project that would be really of interest. That's how we started, because people might be interested in terms of the way the legal system works, you'd have to have what's called, I would call a supervising attorney local in the state of Florida. And so the University of Florida has a unit, and that might not be the right word, with the Southern Poverty Law Center and Kirsten Anderson, who heads the regional operation, has picked this up. And really, we are so grateful that the Southern Poverty Law Center sees this as a project worthy of exploration. The developers' controversial plans for the historic Hungerford School property are under review by the state of Florida. We spoke with N.Y. Nathiri, executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch more than 50 episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, if Tristan DeLuna's 1559 settlement had lasted, Pensacola and not St. Augustine would have been the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in what would become the United States, but the town is a rich part of our state's history. Although Pensacola is one of the oldest sites of European attempts at settlement in North America, the town was, in many ways, still a part of the borderlands in the state's territorial and early statehood era. And life on the borderlands was often short and brutal, as the philosopher said, and for the very reasons that inspired the remark. Frontier life had few restraints with few structural manifestations of the power of the law. James M. Mike Denham, a professor at Florida Southern College in Lakeland, has spent his career studying crime and the court systems of antebellum Florida. In a 2011 article in the Florida Historical Quarterly, he focuses attention on crime and punishment in Pensacola and Escambia County in the period 1822 to 1860. Denham provides a summary of the views of contemporary Pensacolians on the causes of crime and violence and contrasts them with the interpretations on crime and punishment offered by historians and social scientists who study the American South. According to Denham, quote, most Pensacolians believe that drinking, gambling, moral depravity, and a Southern penchant for hot blood, both separate and together, were causes for violence and crime. 
A survey of scholars points to ethnic conflict, economic and racial conflict, a free-for-all political process, and America's root-hog-or-die system of individualism as prominent factors. More specifically, Bertram Wyatt Brown argued for the role of the Southern system of values characterized as honor as a contribution to the region's penchant for violence. And writing on Florida in the antebellum period, Edward Batiste argued that, quote, the desire for mastery and antipathy toward submission dominated the individual consciousness and collective unconsciousness of white men who moved to Florida, end quote. Denham argues that the similarities of Pensacola to other Gulf Coast towns of the era, New Orleans, Mobile, and Tampa, and the rich archival sources on court activity without gaps for the entire antebellum period makes the city a model for the Gulf region. Pensacola included a heterogeneous population of Anglo-Americans, blacks, enslaved and free, and Spanish Creoles with a cultural confluence of Spaniards, blacks, Scots traders, and indigenous people, primarily Creeks. In 1850, it had the largest free black population in the state, 375. As Florida's most important port on the Gulf, it had access to other cities such as New Orleans and Apalachicola, as well as the Caribbean and South America. A busy port with strong military presence, Pensacola was a frontier town with world connections. It was unusual from a historian's perspective in its preservation of criminal and court records. As Denham notes, when utilized with newspapers, state prosecution activity, and other sources, the court records shed light on many aspects of criminal activity in Pensacola, including the types of crimes that were committed, the frequencies to which they were committed, and the success or lack of success to which they were prosecuted. Patterns of punishment can also be discerned. Connie, what were considered to be serious crimes in 19th century Pensacola, and how were these crimes dealt with? Criminal activity fell into several discernible categories. Murder, theft, fighting, runaway slaves, escaped criminals, gambling, and adultery. Denham notes that the most dangerous crimes were crimes against persons, and between 1822 and 1866, court minutes show 309 persons were indicted for violent crime, 36 for murder, 231 for assault and battery, and 39 for assault with intent to kill. Of that number, only 126 were convicted. Fighting between soldiers and sailors and the general population accounted for much of the violence. Samuel Keep, a Bostonian who supervised construction of the Navy Yard in 1827, wrote to a relative that he was, quote, obliged not to step out of doors without both my pistols loaded, end quote. Although violent, most assaults were not fatal and occurred at all levels of society, from laborers to political elites, and included free blacks and slaves. Theft was generally met with corporal punishment, Enoch Howe, who stole a pocketbook containing $115, a writing desk, and numerous articles of clothing, was sentenced to a fine of $50, forced to stand in the pillory for two hours, and received 10 more stripes than the law allowed, a total of 49 lashes. 
Despite the physical severity of punishment, Pensacola continued to be plagued by crimes against property. In 1853, a theft ring headed by Samuel Piper stole $1,000 worth of silver from a British ship, blew up an iron chest in Davis and Cox's store, and made away with $1,600 in gold, and $100 in gold from a second store. Connie, today, opponents of gambling and drinking say that these vices can lead to more serious criminal activity, and as you pointed out, That was true in 19th century Pensacola as well. Yes, gambling and drinking were viewed as both crimes and the source of other criminal activities. Pensacolians were especially concerned about, quote, Negro gambling houses and tippling shops, which resulted in manifold disorders to the interruption of the peace of the city, end quote. Enforcement of laws against retailing goods or spirits without a license, receiving stolen goods, keeping a disorderly house, and trading with slaves was intended to curtail underground activity and maintain the racial hierarchy. In 1838, Joseph Alton was fined $150 for trading boots and other stolen property with a slave named David and a white man. During that same term of court, he was indicted for, quote, keeping a disorderly tippling house where he procured certain persons, black and white, men and women, of evil name and fame and disorderly conversation to frequent and come together, end quote. Alton lived a violent life, and in July 1839, he was stabbed to death outside his establishment. Legislators were also concerned with maintaining public order and morality and enacted numerous laws regulating personal behavior, particularly targeting adultery and illicit sex. Couples brought up on charges of cohabitation could, quote, prevent or suspend prosecution by marriage legally solemnized, end quote. Denham reports 50 indictments for adultery in the antebellum period, with five found guilty, 13 not guilty, and 32 cases that never reached a verdict. Gambling was the most frequently prosecuted public disorder and morality crime, although despite repeated legislative acts to outlaw gambling, residents actually had little to fear in regard to arrest and prosecution. Denham reports that Pensacolians played poker, bet on lotteries, and wagered on faro, a gambling game that swept through the Old Southwest in the 1830s and 1840s. Different segments of the population blamed one another for the prevalence of gambling. Protestants claimed that the predominance of the Roman Catholic Church accounted for, quote, the large number of gambling shops, end quote, but it was clear that they were not the only ones. Denham cites a commenter who noted that, quote, Anglo-American gamblers are as dexterous as in evading laws as they are in handling cards, end quote. Stamping out gambling proved impossible no matter the level of public outcry. Punishment often proved elusive as well. Pensacola and Escambia County simply did not have the resources to effectively arrest, indict, prosecute, and punish criminal offenses. Denham points out that, quote, inefficiency and chronic underfunding was the norm in the South and a glaring characteristic of Escambia County government, particularly in Florida's territorial period. 
sheriffs, U.S. marshals, and their deputies worked on fees, and citizens were loath to pay taxes to incarcerate criminals. Richard Hassel Hunt, editor of the Pensacola Gazette, wrote in 1828 that, quote, our criminal jurisprudence is little less than a dead letter. There is no disposition to bring offenders to justice because there is not means of punishing them, end quote. Pensacola did not have a secure jail. Prisoners were housed in a basement room of the courthouse and escapes were frequent. Moreover, the county provided no funding to feed prisoners. When a particularly violent criminal was arrested in 1827, he was housed in the jail for 11 days without food. Appeals to the Pensacola Board of County Aldermen to provide for the prisoner were rejected and he was freed. Denham concludes his survey of crime and punishment by noting that it mirrors the history of other southern states. Law enforcement was haphazard, underfunded, inefficient, and reflective of an honor-bound, frontier-like society. It was not a positive legacy for the future. Interesting. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Miami is a place that influences fashion. As Holly Baker reports, Joan Nielsen McHale made a career of writing about fashion in Miami. Dr. Kimberly Voss is a tenured professor of journalism at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She's also the author of several books, including Reevaluating Women's Page Journalism in the Post World War II Era, Celebrating Soft News. She told me about Joan Nielsen McHale the influential Miami News fashion editor who was known as Miami's first lady of fashion in the 1950s and 1960s. Joan was a real pioneer in terms of early society writing. She was a great fashion editor, and she was one of the few women of her era in Miami to balance having a family with her career as a women's page journalist. She had four children. Most of the women's page journalists of that era had none. So she really was doing something that she didn't have a model for. She was really kind of trying to balance all these things on her own without the things that we have today, like childcare and that sort of thing. Joan was raised during the Great Depression. She had polio as a child. She began to get interested in journalism in high school and started writing society news for the Miami Daily News at age 15. Before the 1970s, the only place where women like Joan Nielsen McHale could work in the newspaper was the women's page. In the early 20th century, the women's page mostly covered society and fashion news. In the 1950s and 1960s, the women's section of the newspaper began discussing not only soft news, but also hard news topics, such as equal rights and reproductive issues. Quite often during this era in the 1950s going into the 1960s, women couldn't work anywhere else in the newspaper on the editorial side. They could do classifieds and answer phones, of course. But to be in the women's page was sometimes seen as lesser, but women like Joan were significant to their communities and significant in what's called soft news. 
family fashion, food, and furnishings. She had a noon to two daily talk show on WKAT. So she was um, multitasking early. So she did radio and she did print news. She went to the University of Miami where she was voted class clown. She had that kind of personality and you can kind of see that in her writing and in her friendships. She dropped out in 1953 to go into journalism. She had been the newspaper editor at the University of Miami. And she said in her later years, everything she really learned about journalism, she learned at the student newspaper, which I think could be said for lots of folks that have gone through student newspaper work in college. As consumer culture emerged in the 1950s and 1960s, fashion journalists working for newspapers like the Miami News and the Miami Herald became very influential. Fashionable readers looked to Joan Nielsen McHale for the latest clothing trends. She also became known for her society column about ordinary people. When she was at the Miami News, she did have a kind of a neighborhood column. The neighborhood column would say, this is what your neighbors are doing. This is where so-and-so got accepted to college. This is where people are vacationing or the kinds of things they did in their everyday lives. And historically, I think that's going to end up being very important. And many newspapers had that. And that was Joan's beat for a while to write about what everyday people were doing, not just society parties or fundraising balls and that sort of thing, but just everyday people. And I think that's the thing that she's truly added to South Florida history, as well as the fact that the things she did at Women's Wear Daily I think are going to be studied by fashion journalists and fashion historians in years to come. Even though her column for Miami News often focused on everyday people, Joan Nielsen McHale also had the opportunity to cover the most famous family of the time, the Kennedys, for Women's Wear Daily. After she left Miami, she went to Women's Wear Daily, which is a nationwide newspaper devoted to fashion. And again, fashion is a significant industry in this country, even though we sometimes dismiss it as fluff or kind of lesser than hard news. But she covered fashion at Women's Wear Daily for many years, and one of her main beats was the White House. So she had a White House press card in the same way that Helen Thomas did. In fact, they worked there at the same time. But it was Joan's job to cover fashion at a time when the White House was very fashionable. This is the Jackie Kennedy years, as well as the fact that John F. Kennedy's sisters were also very fashionable. They don't always get the credit. <laughs> and so she covered the inauguration. Describing what everyone was wearing was news. And we still see this to this day, who the designer is, what kind of coat the first lady is wearing, what other celebrities that are at the inauguration. So she got as much coverage for her work that was then often picked up at other newspapers across the country as a political writer. In 1961, she covered President Kennedy's State of the Union address. She also noted in her coverage that the president's sister, Ethel Kennedy, was hatless. Now, that doesn't seem like it would be news today, <laughs> but Ethel not wearing a hat at this formal event was considered a big deal. And the Kennedys and hats are also part of fashion history. President Kennedy was known as the person that stopped men from wearing hats in our country. And again, you know, whether you like hats or don't, it's still a moment in history. And presidents after Kennedy still sometimes had to defend not wearing hats, but the Kennedys had a real change about that moment. Joan Nielsen McHale's fashion news reporting helped put Miami on the map as a trendy and stylish city. From being the fashion editor for the Miami News to reporting on the fashion of the Kennedy family at the White House during the peak of their popularity, she left her mark on women's news. Dr. Kimberly Voss. Women like Joan made a difference in their community 
They helped connect people to each other. They helped establish communities, especially when Miami was just kind of finding its footing in terms of a growing city. And she was the kind of person that helped change women's news. And since that was the one place that women could work at the time, that challenge to what women were interested in in the newspaper so important. And we we see that in later years as we start to understand that women's interests were both inside the home and outside the home. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.